Welcome to the Health Leaders Revenue Cycle podcast. I'm Alexandra Petchy, Revenue Cycle Editor for Health Leaders. Today, I'm excited to welcome Doug Wolf, co-founder and partner of the Miami-based law firm Wolf Pinkavage, who's here to talk to us today about United Healthcare's plan to retroactively deny ED claims. Doug, thank you very much for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Um, we've, you know, we've had a lot of experience with United Healthcare and, and all their different policies and procedures, and, and so. Um, I'm excited to kind of share our insight into you know, how they operate with, with you and your listeners. In early June, United Healthcare said it would start assessing ED facility commercial claims and possibly deny ones that it considers non-emergent. And originally, the plan was to start this policy on July 1st, but there was a lot of outcry and pushback from organizations like the American College of Emergency Physicians and the American Hospital Associations. Because of that, United Healthcare backtracked a little bit and said it would delay the change until at least the end of the COVID pandemic. Providers said United Healthcare's plan not only violated the prudent layperson statute, but also puts patients at risk because it would deter them from seeking needed emergency care, which obviously has been an issue during the entire pandemic. So, Doug, can you first just give us an overview of the, that policy and its status? Where do we stand with it now? Yeah, good question. So, I mean, I think that you you pretty accurately summed up what they're trying to do. You know, they're they're trying to Monday morning quarterback emergency room visits, and you know they're they're going to look at you know you know when you go to the emergency room, they'll probably have some proprietary coding that the United Healthcare applies to claims to determine whether or not. Um, in their mind, objectively, a claim met their criteria for an emergency. Um, so the the policy uh, has, has, as you mentioned, has been delayed indefinitely until at least the end of the COVID pandemic. So right now it's been put on hold. So it remains to be seen whether they're going to push forward with it or if you know the PR nightmare that this created for them is, is a big enough deterrent to stop them from implementing it. I want to talk about that prudent layperson statute, which seems to be in place to prevent exactly these kinds of policies. What is it, and does United Healthcare's proposal actually violate it? The prudent layperson standard kind of originated, I believe, in the 80s, and it was a reaction to things insurance companies were doing way back in the day about you know requiring prior authorization for emergency services and and trying to you know prevent their patient, their their members or enrollees or their insureds, whichever term you want to use, um, hospital patients, from, you know, accessing emergency benefits. And so what a lot of states did, and it's in some federal regulations, is with the way that they defined an emergency medical condition is that, you know, if you have symptoms of a sufficient severity that a prudent layperson would think leads to you know, complications or it was life-threatening or you know, could could cause serious illness. Um, so they, they added that prudent layperson language into the definition of, um, of of an emergency medical condition. And and the idea was, you don't want people that are experiencing some sort of really you know, severe pain or some sort of condition from you know, not going to the ER because they're afraid of what's going to happen with insurance or what they're going to be charged, and then you know things become worse. You know, God forbid something bad happens to them. So it was really kind of a policy reaction to some of the things that the insurance companies were doing back in the day. There's not like one specific 
prudent layperson statute, really where it's found is in the definitions of emergency medical condition in different states and some of the federal regulations and, and different various you know, laws that cover coverage for emergency treatment. So do you think that as it's written, what United Healthcare is trying to do violates those standards in any yeah, way? I, I do. Um, in Florida, there's language on the books that the determination of, a, of an emergency medical condition is made by the attending or the treating physician um, at the time that the patient presents to the emergency department. And the legislature wrote that law so that the person, you know, the boots on the ground, the person seeing the patient and all of their symptoms is making a determination as to whether or not there's there's an emergency medical condition here that, that fits the definition of the statute. Emergency care isn't just, okay, this person has an emergency medical condition and we need to fix it. You know, the emergency treatment includes determining whether there's an emergency condition in the first place. You know, if somebody presents with chest pain, for example, it could be gas or it could be a heart attack. And until you know what what it is, until you do that diagnostic workup, you, you can't be sure to, you know, to rule out some sort of a serious medical condition. So, you know, the, the doctor that's treating the patient at the, at the point of service is in the best position to evaluate, you know, whether they need care or what, whether there's an emergency. And that's what the laws, in, you know, at least in Florida and the, in the medical prudent layperson stuff was all intended to, you know, to cover or, you know, that's what it contemplated. And so when you have a, um, you know, health insurance company whose interest is to bring down the cost of care, Monday morning quarterbacking, whether a medical condition was an emergency, but they're not there in the emergency room. They don't see, you know, they don't see the look on the patient's face. They don't see, you know, a lot of nonverbal communications. They, they don't, they don't have the full picture. And so, you know, the, the laws were not designed for insurance companies to Monday morning quarterback this stuff. And, and we see it a lot, you know, in, in not just emergency medical condition context, but insurance companies Monday morning quarterbacking everything, medical necessity determinations, coding, whatever. And, you know, part of the problem is that the insurance companies only get the data that's submitted in the, you know, in the medical record that they request them or in the coding, the claim stuff. And they don't, they don't see, the, the, they don't get the full picture of the, the patient's criteria. And a lot of times, the, you know, the data entry folks that United Healthcare has, they, they may not put the same weight on, you know, one comorbidity as, as the doctor may at the point of care. And so it's, it's really hard to have any sort of objective data-driven criteria as to what an emergency is going to be. It, it really undermines what the physicians are doing at the point of care, and it's, it's bad policy. And, and, and that's why, you know, I think that they delayed implementation of this because they recognized that it, that it was going to be problematic. So, you know, that's a long way of saying, yeah, I think that the policy does violate the law. And I think United Healthcare probably appreciated that if they pushed forward with that, they were going to face a lot of lawsuits over it. So that's why they put the brakes on it. 
Yeah, and one of the things when I asked for a statement from United Healthcare, one of the things they said that they would do in the meantime is educate patients about other forms of care that they could get besides emergency care. Do you think that's a better route than just these, you know, retroactive denials? Yeah, so I, I you know, I have two thoughts about that. One is yes, always, you know, the the if United's worried about the cost of care, it's their they should be educating their members and 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 helping them understand where they can get more efficient, convenient, cost effective care. You know, I think we're starting to see adoption of that in telehealth and urgent care centers now or almost on every you know, every street corner it seems like. So yeah, I think the onus is is on the insurance company to educate their members on how they're utilizing healthcare services. You know, as a kind of a counterpoint to that, a lot of what these prudent layperson policies do, and United Healthcare wasn't the first to you know to come up with this, um, is they punish the hospital for the member's decision. You know, because if the claim gets denied, most of the time that turns into bad debt, and it's going to be hard to collect from the patient. And so you're punishing the hospital, and they're not the ones that may are making the decision on whether or not to go to the emergency room. So the policy is kind of disconnected from the, 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 the incentive or, you know, the, the person that they're incentivizing is the hospital and they're not the decision maker. So it doesn't seem like it would be an effective mechanism to, to change their members' behaviors and, and to help people consume healthcare in a more cost-effective manner. The other the other piece that I would add, and it's kind of a, you know, not not necessarily a policy issue, but one of the things that we're seeing specifically with United Healthcare is it appears to me, and, and this is just anecdotal, um, but based on my experience and seeing the way that they're drafting a lot of their policies, it appears to me that they, they may be using their health plan policies and procedures to steer patients to medical facilities that Optum Healthcare owns. So in, in this ER context, I think they I think there's a, a company called MedExpress that's owned by Optum and I think they have about 250 urgent care centers throughout the country. Mm-hmm. And so if Optum puts pressure on people not to go to the ER but to use urgent care centers instead, it's going to drive more patients to places that they've owned that they own we've seen it also with ambulatory surgery centers you know we've seen them craft policies that you know surgeries that could be done in an ASC um, will not be authorized in a hospital and lo and behold they own a bunch of ASCs so we're, we're seeing a lot of policies that it may maybe it's a coincidence but I, I suspect not um, we're seeing a lot of policies that are designed to kind of steer their members. You know, we're seeing it in, in pharmacy stuff, like, you know, lab stuff, uh, steer members to medical providers that are owned by Optum, and it keeps everything within the uh, United Healthcare uh, ecosystem. And again, the collateral damage of that is hospitals and revenue cycles who have to kind of deal with the, the mess. Right. Well, and the hospitals don't have, right. So hospitals are competing 
with United Healthcare from a from more from the, from the op, you know the Optum provider places provider locations, but they don't the hospitals do not have the same power to direct patients through coverage determination. So it it is it is very bad for hospitals um, because it's it's a it's a competition issue and and they frankly they can't they can't compete because they're not set up to to steer patients here or there because they don't they're not the insurance company so it, it is bad and and you know you think about the patient that's you know that's having a heart attack and they think oh well maybe I I should go to urgent care because it might just be gas or whatever and and the urgent care centers aren't. They don't have the equipment typically to diagnose, you know, serious medical conditions. So there, there is a quality of care aspect to this, you know, when, when you start putting profits before, you know, what's the right thing for treating a patient. I live across the street from an urgent care center and multiple times a day, our ambulances are called to take patients to the emergency room because that's where they should have been in the first place. Yeah, and, and I think that, that 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 was part of the pushback from you know the providers that were pushing back on this ED policy is that the 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 low acuity ER visits are not are not where the cost is. You know that's not the high cost for healthcare. And if you're if you're directing people to places that aren't set up to treat you know, the serious conditions, if, if they do exist, then you have, you know, you add the ambulance visit. So now you have the urgent care visit, you have the ambulance transport, and then you have the ER visit on the back end. It would have been a lot cheaper if they just went to the ER in the first place. So the economics of the policy don't make a lot of sense, um, you know, when you look at it in the aggregate. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us for more with Doug when we come back. Hi, this is Melanie Blackman, Strategy Editor at Health Leaders. I'm here to tell you to check out the Health Leaders Women in Healthcare Leadership podcast, which drops every first Wednesday of the month. On my show, I sit down with women executives who share insights on important healthcare topics, their leadership experience, and how others can climb up the organizational ladder. Subscribe and listen to the Health Leaders Women in Healthcare Leadership podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. Welcome back. I'm talking with Doug Wolf of Wolf Pinkavage. So, Doug, I know there are some current lawsuits challenging policies like this. Can you tell us about some of those and what the status is with them? Yeah, sure. So, the big the big lawsuit that's out there that I'm aware of is you know, the, I believe the American or the Academy of American College of Emergency Physicians filed a lawsuit against Anthem in Georgia over a similar policy that Anthem enacted in, in I think it was five or six states, Georgia, Missouri, some, some other states. The case was dismissed originally on, I believe for ERISA reasons, and then the College of emergency physicians appealed. They won that appeal at the 11th Circuit in October. And so the case is, you know, plugging away at the, you know, the trial court level. So I know that that's a big one that's out there. I think that the 11th Circuit precedent was pretty good for the providers. In addition to that, there's, there's always, you know, United Healthcare is not the first insurance company that's done this. And 
you know, we have a couple lawsuits where we're challenging. It happens a lot in the Medicaid space, you know. Um, we've seen prudent layperson type policies be enacted over the last five years, and we've litigated them uh, where you, you contest the denials or the, you know, the reduced reimbursement that the hospitals experience as a result of these policies. And, you know, and by and large, we're generally pretty successful. Um, I think in Florida, like I, like I mentioned, there's, there's some pretty good law in the books about the providers, the one, the attending physicians, the one making the determination of whether an emergency medical condition exists. So I think that the, the law is more on the provider's side. So, you know, in my experience, these lawsuits tend to bode pretty well for the providers. Uh, the, you know, the trick is always identifying which claims were denied because of these policies versus other reasons. You know, was the denial because the member didn't have benefits that were ineligible, or was the denial because of some sort of an emergency department policy? Um, so that's that's going to be key for revenue cycle folks is to make sure that they're they're appropriately tracking the denial reasons or uh, underpayment reasons with their emergency claim. When it comes to those denials that are specifically because the issue was not an emergency and was billed as one, are there any examples that come to mind for you? Examples as far as pending lawsuits? Yeah. Or, yeah. I'm, so I, I, we have, like I said, we, we have one right now that's currently in arbitration. And that's the problem with a lot of these cases is that most many of the contracts between the insurance companies and the hospitals will have arbitration provisions. Mm -hmm. So you won't really hear about these disputes if they go to arbitration um, because typically they're either, you know, settled as part of the arbitration or they're, you know, the, the arbitration decisions don't always become public. So the, the cases that you will hear about are cases where there's no contract or no arbitration provision. So that's why the the one you know the big one that I know about is this um, the case in Georgia with the emergency uh, physician group, and you know that every now and then the AHA files some sort of a lawsuit challenging hospital policies and procedures. But they they can do that because they're and and those types of cases become public because there is no arbitration agreement. But as far as any any specific case where you know we've seen a hospital recover money because of denials over emergency emergency reimbursement policies i can't think of any that are public um i i just know that they happen and i you know i know that they're they're frequently arbitrated and and you know nine times out of ten these cases end up settling if it usually goes in the direction of the hospital why do insurance companies keep trying to push with these you know, violations of that prudent layperson standard? <laughs> That's a great question. You know, why do insurance companies do anything? Um, <laughs> right. I, I don't, I don't have the, I don't really have the answer to it, but, you know, I, I can tell you we've seen, you know, years ago, WellCare in Florida did a prudent layperson thing where they um, applied coding to determine whether an emergency was an emergency. Everybody was up in arms and, you know, they went to the state and, you know, I know WellCare got sued a bunch of times by different hospitals throughout the state. And eventually they backed off 
that policy, and I, I don't think that they still are, are implementing it, or if they are, it's been so watered down that it doesn't have a significant financial impact on our clients at least. Um, United Healthcare, you know, in addition to this most recent policy, they did a similar thing um, for Medicaid plans in Florida, where they said if it's, you know, if we determine it's not an emergency, we're going to reduce the reimbursement by like 40%. And so that that specific issue is involved in an arbitration that we currently have against United Healthcare. I don't know why they why they keep keep doing this stuff. Um, you know, I think that these organizations are filled with people that have you know they spend their days thinking about how they can pay less in claims and and they come up with these ideas and, and then I you know they they get shot down and I think they retread them and they think oh well maybe we can do it a little bit more sophisticated this time and it'll work. But yeah, I don't I don't I don't really know the answer as to why they keep doing stuff that's clearly not well received by providers and not well received by patients either. And yet, as we've said, more payers do seem to be moving in this direction to like really limit ED claims. Is this, you know, in 10 years, what ED claims are going to look like? Um, you know, it's hard to say that. I, I think, I, I think that you're going to see, you know, the last five years we've seen these kinds of policies popping up and they, you know, they come and they go. And, and, and I think that you'll see more of that. I think, I think plans will try it and then they'll, you know, they'll get shut down or they'll, they'll get a lawsuit and they realize the cost benefit's not there. You, you could end up, you know, over the next 10 years, you could end up seeing regulation that really, you know, puts an end to this one way or the other. Uh, but I think what's more likely to happen is just an organic decrease in ER utilization as people become more comfortable with telehealth stuff as you know as we talked about urgent care center visits are are up you know you know they keep going up um you know i think there have been a lot of statistics and i'm you know i'm not a statistics guy but there have been a there's been a lot published about you know the pandemic's effect on um, er utilization and how in 2020 it was down significantly and as a result of that drop in ER utilization, I think people adopted other healthcare, you know, platforms for, you know, like I said, telehealth and, and you know, doctors are now doing, it's easier to do a telehealth visit with your primary care doctor. You don't have to wait in the waiting room. So it, there's, there's alternative methods for people to get on-demand care, which I think will organically decrease the low acuity ER visits that the health plans are attacking with these policies. And so my suspicion is that the future of ED visits over the next 10 years will be such that you don't really need these policies and that you're, there's going to be a higher percentage of people that are showing up to the ER that have a true, you know, serious, critical emergency medical condition. So I, I, I would have a hard time believing that, that this is going to be the thing of the future, but I think that plans will try it. They try anything to, you know, to save a buck. So uh, I think it'll be a recurring theme, but I, I think the need for it will definitely decrease in the future. Doug, it's been really nice talking with you. Thanks for being here and sharing your expertise with us. I appreciate you having me on and, um, you know, thank you. 
Thank you listeners for joining us on the Health Leaders Revenue Cycle podcast. Until next time, keep taking care of patients and each other.